Maine, a place where you can find breathtaking scenery from sandy beaches, ice-capped mountains, and pristine lakes. A place you can enjoy a delicious lobster while sipping on one of Maine's finest craft brews and saving room for a blueberry pie. But the one thing many people may not know about Maine is the artistry and craftsmanship that comes with the culture of this beautiful state. From the Industrial Revolution to now, Maine has continued to build its economy through makers, and there are hundreds of them. Maine has makers that can handcraft a high-quality piece of wood furniture where the joinery fits like a glove. So a skirt made with plant-based fabric with a New England-made machine that was invented in 1881. Make a mean mustard through a cold grind process made in the same mill since 1900, and much more. Join me for a journey through the lives of makers from across Maine to hear how they get down with their craft. I'm Christian Vermeulen, and this is Makers of Maine. On to our third and last destination of the week is Swanville to visit Jody Johnstone. The drive was beautiful as we passed by Swan Lake. The water was still and quiet, and as we arrived at Jody's studio, it felt like Francis and I were going camping for the weekend. With the log cabin, smell of pine, and the surrounding of trees, we definitely did not want to leave this happy place. Jody was so welcoming as she showed us around her property and inside the wood-fired kiln. In Jody and I's conversation, I ask, can you go inside the kiln, or is it just a small space that you can just reach your hands in and you know throw some uh, ceramics in there, ready to go through the kiln process? And uh, after going to her studio and seeing this kiln for myself, well, it's not small. It's big. I mean, there's a small group of people that can go into this kiln. It's amazing. It really is just a beautiful tunnel that formulates well-crafted ceramics. Emily from Maine Crafts Association is right. You have to know Jody Johnstone. Her work is one of a kind, and I am so honored to interview her for the series. Now, let's talk craft with Jody Johnstone. Hi, Jody. It is so nice to be able to talk to you today on the Makers of Maine podcast. So lovely to have you. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So the first question I usually start off with all of my guests is, what is your craft and what inspired you to start it? Yes. So I'm a potter and I'm a wood firing potter. And I guess that is a a bit of a specialty within the, the very wide world of pottery. I first got interested in pottery and wood fire in general when I was first in Japan. And that was during my 20s after I graduated from college. I had gone over to Japan to teach English and I ended up staying in Japan for four years at that time. I had moved up to Tokyo and I was working in an advertising agency. But I had a little bit of time on my hands on weekends, and I would um, kind of tromp around the city and visit shops, and um, I started seeing pottery really like everywhere I looked. And I would, um, I'd go into shops and start start buying things. I lived in Kyoto as well, and Kyoto has a great tradition of pottery and there's streets that lead up to kind of famous tourist destinations that are pot shops on both sides of the street. So I guess my first um, 
how I first got into it really was sort of looking at it and starting to use it and, and be a customer of, of pottery. Um, during that first stint in Japan, it was, it was four years. Um, I didn't do any potting at all. But then I moved back to New York City to work in a uh, TV production company. And it was up on the Upper West Side. And right uh, in my neighborhood was a community pottery studio. It was called uh, Super Mud. And I don't think it's there anymore. It was up on... I think like 106th Street on the west, Upper West Side. And I was able to walk there from where I lived. And that really was how I got into the making side of it. My first teacher um, was Louise Harder, and she's a great wood fire potter in Bethany, Connecticut. And it turns out that she was that very summer that I started was going to build a wood-fired kiln for the owner of, of the studio up in Walton, New York, which was about three hours north of the city. So I just joined in on that right away. And it was such a great summer. You know, we were all really young and we didn't care if we left the city at 10 o'clock at night and got up there at two o'clock in the morning and worked all day all weekend and came back it was it was just a great summer of kiln building so we built a wood-fired kiln up in in walton new york and then at the end of the summer fired it and we would start firing that kind of periodically. And it's a seductive process. And as you start to get into it, you just want to do more. And in addition to that kiln building experience in Walton, I also started um, sort of searching out mentors for myself. And a very important mentor to me was a great ceramicist in Accord, New York, named Jeff Shapiro. And he, he had lived in Japan. He was actually married. He is married to a Japanese woman. And he knows so many potters over there. He, he exhibits there. He's very, very active in Japan. And I just started kind of hanging around his place as much as I could, trying to make myself slightly useful, you know, just, just as young people do when they're trying to learn things. He had an apprentice over from Japan at the time as well, a young man who we kind of took under our wing and we brought him up to the kiln building project in Walton, New York too, so that he could help us and hang around with Americans and learn English. And so it was kind of a little bit of a reciprocal that way. Wow. So it sounds like this is such a, such a hobby. It sounds like it's such a, not even just a hobby, just like a, a break from life really, because what you're doing is you're escaping outside of the city and going somewhere that's so fresh and so unique and you can learn something and, and be yes. educated behind it. So tell me a little bit more about this apprenticeship like you were speaking mm -hmm. about. I just feel like uh, that was kind of really what started your career in the wood fire and pottery, correct? Yeah. Well, um, so I was sort of a 
like you mentioned, kind of a hobbyist. Um, and that went on for really a couple of years. And I would, I wouldn't say Je I wasn't an apprentice of Jeff's. He has an established protocol for taking on apprentices and it's rigorous. Um, I had asked him if I could apprentice with him because by this time I wasn't really interested in my job anymore. Like you say, you don't, I, um, I really was, I wanted to just make pots and fire and I was looking to how to do that. I didn't want to go back to grad school. I really did want an apprentice. So I had talked to Jeff. I had talked to other people around the country, but I really couldn't find a situation that was right for me. But then sometime that one winter, I think this was in 1993, I got a phone call from Jeff and he said he was going over to Japan and asked me if he would if I would like him to see if he could arrange anything for me and I said absolutely and he called me back um, when he returned and he said I have found a place for you to go study and it was with a master potter named Jun Isezaki in Bizen Japan and uh, Isezaki Sensei was a second generation potter. His father had been a very famous potter too. And Isezaki Sensei was a prefectural treasure. So he was very famous and he took apprentices on. And I was actually the th his third apprentice at that time. He had had a string of apprentices through the years and most of them now are famous potters also with their own system of apprentices. But um, he took me on and I was sort of the junior apprentice. There were two other senior apprentices uh, before me. They were actually young Japanese men and I was maybe almost 10 years older than them and an American woman. So that was a little bit contentious not always the super friendliest hmm. scenario um, really because over there the junior apprentices would take sort of their direction and orders for the day from the senior apprentices but having gone all the way over to Japan I, I wasn't that interested in that particular um, hierarchy so I you know, I just kind of, I went around them a little bit, right. I have to admit, um, to forge my own relationship with wow, my teacher. Interesting. Um, but I, yeah, and um, I did, I spoke Japanese pretty fluently at the time, and I, I didn't, I, I didn't mind the kind of the strict, uh, it's kind of a, it was kind of a male system there. Um, for example, in the, the Bizen Potters organization, it would be something like the Main Crafts Association here, but it was just for Bizen Potters. And there was 400 potters and there were only 17 women in it at the time. Wow. This was in the mid nineties. Right. Um, my, my teacher was pretty open in terms of working with women. Um, he was really one of the more cosmopolitan um, thinking of the 
of the traditional potter, certainly. He had had women before, he had had Americans before. So it was a, it was a great, it was a great um, place to land. And I didn't get any sort of that kind of like sexism or anything from my teacher, but it was there around me. And hmm. so I, I was able to navigate that fine. Um, yeah, it's just so interesting. I wonder if that has changed now. Um, since I know that was back in, you said in the, the 90s when you in were the mid-90s. Over there? mid-90s. Yeah. yeah. I'm always so curious about that. I mean, do you stay in touch with those folks over there? I have sort of a one way stay in touch with them in that I always communicate with my teacher at Christmas and I know he reads my letters and I know he loves them just because I remember when I was in the studio with him and he would get a letter from from America he would run in he would be you know read it to everybody he'd be so happy he'd be showing around cards so I really don't expect him to write back to me but um, I know he gets my letters and appreciates them. And he, yeah, he had his son email me something. I think it was last winter. So that was really great. You know, just, just to hear from them that way. Oh, I'm sure. And yeah. So so one question I I have for you is, so I know uh, different cultures tend to appreciate pottery or like kind of fit pottery into their lifestyles in a different matter. When you were over in Japan, did you notice that pottery was treated in a different light compared to the United States? Absolutely. Um, I would say in every home in the country, there are sets and sets of, of handmade dishes. They even sell handmade dishes in the department stores and even in fairly um, just regular stores. Um, Not everybody certainly is buying pots from the National Living Treasures by any means, but um, pottery is part of the culture there. Um, Definitely very integrated with the cuisine because if you can picture a Japanese meal, I'm just sort of using my hands right here in front of me, Mm -hmm. there would be kind of a small rectangular plate in the middle, and that might be a piece of fish across it. And then there's a bowl for miso soup and a little bowl for a pile of pickled something. Another uh, bowl, which would have for rice, And then there might be a lacquered bowl or another pottery bowl that has another course in it, maybe a tofu course. And they're all served on separate dishes. Wow. So it makes a beautiful presentation. And even in, you know, on a normal family dinner, um, every home that I was in over my, I was in Japan for six years, even a normal family dinner would come out on all of those dishes. That's so interesting. And also what I've heard um, just from folks who have been to Japan is that they kind of treat pottery as like a statement or like a symbol and just leaving that one piece of pottery on like a piece of furniture or something. They're very like minimalist. Did you happen to see that a lot over in your travels to Japan and your time in Japan? Certainly, um, an an important piece of pottery would be displayed that way. For example, 
in the tokonoma of a tea room, and that's that little alcove behind where the tea ceremony would happen, mm -hmm. would have a very special vase in it. And a special tea bowl would come out just solo for a tea ceremony. Wow. Um, so it definitely is a, tr you know, treated as a treasured object. Certainly the, the more expensive and um, rare pieces. I display things. Um, I would clean off my big wooden table and just put a nice pot on it. Yeah, I find that our culture is tending to lean more towards that minimalist approach. And uh, it's so interesting just to see some of the elements of furniture and some home decor pieces that are more Japanese influence too. So it's interesting that you started, you know, earlier in the ball game and people are kind of starting a little bit later here in the States. So no wonder people have been gravitating to your products for so long because it's just very different. Now, would you say that your pieces are mainly inspired by Japanese or you have you had other influences along the way in your pottery journey? I feel like my pots are are not made for, are not copies of Japanese pots at all, or made for a Japanese lifestyle. They're made for our lives, um, but there is a sense of Japan in them, definitely. And a lot of that comes from the firing. They're very, um, you know, subdued wood-fired pots. So they're in shades of browns, gold, gray, um, I'll show you a lot more of that when you come up here to see the pots. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a, sub, a subdued um, element to them and you see more with time as you live with them. But I, I think the pots themselves are, are more, um, well, I've been doing it a long time now, so they're really more my own that fit in. I'd have to just say with our customs, for example, I don't make tea ceremony bowls. And a lot of people, a lot of potters even do make those, but I don't feel like I do tea ceremony and most of my customers don't. So I don't really make that kind of thing. I make um, handled mugs. I mean, I will make a tea ceremony bowl if someone asks me for them, but that's not been my main interest trying to completely bring Japan here and try to you know spread that work right Does that, that totally makes sense? sense yes yeah I and mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you did what if I pottery start in Japan do you know um the way I understand it the history of the Japanese anagama kiln is that the technique was actually forcibly imported from Korea. Hmm. And so the Japanese went over and brought back the Korean potters to make works for the emperors and the history of the kilns is a little bit um, colored that way. But in Japan, they've been doing it for a thousand years. Bizen had its thousand year retrospective when I was there. 
So that's a really long, weighty history. But I think the originals came from Japan, uh, from China and Korea. Okay. And then were brought to Japan. Great. So I find that your experience in Japan and your apprenticeship and just all of that experience is just so amazing to hear through your journey because I bet you a lot of potters don't have that experience. And, um, and to take that and, you know, go to, and then living in New York and building a kiln with a, you know, a team of other people. So you've just had such a breadth of just a journey. And I wanted to ask you, how did you get here to Maine to kind of build your own yeah. kiln and start your own process? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I came back from Japan in 1996 and I was almost 30 at the time, so I was um, really ready to, to locate somewhere and, you know, build the pottery. I am from Connecticut, so I had been really looking for land a little bit closer to there. Um, I had been looking in Massachusetts and in New York State, but I really couldn't find anything that fit my parameters of, I think my parameters at the time were five acres or more and just for the land $20,000 or less. And I didn't find anything like that. And I had started to get discouraged. I think I had looked at like every property that matched that description west of 91 in Massachusetts over the course of a couple months while I was back at my parents' house. And then this place that I landed in, in Swanville, Maine, was advertised in Ceramics Monthly, which is the trade journal that most of us get. And the owner was selling this. Uh, there was a totally livable and really charming cabin and a falling down kiln. There was a studio and an unimproved building at the time, big barn. Wow, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> on 10 acres, on 10 acres. And it was, yeah, um, and it was an affordable price. And it was February, but I came right up here and I had never been to Maine before. So my first trip to Maine was in February. And I came here and she had it so cozy. The wood stove was um, going and she had made cookies. So I didn't even notice that the cabin was actually kind of a cold building because at the <laughs> time she had it so cozy. Um, and my place is only about 10 minutes from downtown Belfast too. So even though it was February, I drove into Belfast and the co-op was open and the movie theater was open. You know, I could just see it was a great welcoming town. So I just, I called my father and I said, I love it and it's going to be perfect. And I just went right into the local um, law office and had him draft up an offer for me. Wow. So it really felt like fate that I found this. And I mean, I never had been to Maine, but it really has turned out to be such a good place for me. And we'll get to, I wanted to ask you more about your uh, why going to Maine and how it's been such a good experience for you. Well, we'll get to that mm -hmm. later on in the interview. Okay. But sure. I wanted to ask you, uh, can you inform our audience of the beginning to end process of building or just really crafting your pieces? I know that you built this, is it called an anag anagama kiln? I believe that's what yeah. you call it. Okay. The kiln is the kiln is called an anagama. Anagama. Okay. And ana means 
tunnel and kama or gama is kiln. So it's the Japanese word for a tunnel kiln. And I built the original kiln. I'm actually on my second anagama right now, but I built the original kiln, um, 1996 and 1997. And I fired it for 17 years and it started to wear over that time. And in 2015, I, tore it down to the footprint and I actually had it rebuilt by professional kiln builders. But while I was in Japan, I had spent a good amount of time observing professional kiln builders. There was a great kiln being built just around the corner from my teacher's place. And he would let me go up there in the afternoons and just watch what they were doing. So I had really tried to document as much as I could of the kiln building process when I was in Japan. And they had the kiln builders had been really kind to me. I was kind of a novelty, you know, being an American girl, um, interested in what they were doing. So they had shared any number of um, their kiln plans with me, and I had studied those and just tried to absorb the dimensions, even though they weren't going to be exactly to my kiln just try to understand kiln building and dimensions and design and so I designed my kiln and it took about a year to build it it was you know as you go process I'd be down there every day and laying brick I built the form that the bricks went up against and then when the whole kiln was built the kiln is 17 feet long so that's big. <laughs> um, it is big. Yeah. Uh, it's 24 feet long with the, with the flu. So once the kiln, once the bricks came together up over the form, then I burned the form out and the kiln was standing. Mm. So that was a big job. But once that was done, you know, I, I, it, I didn't go back to it each year. Then the rest of my work revolves around the making of the pots and the firing of the kiln. So yeah. I, I fire twice a year in May and October. And that's pretty much when it gets warm enough to be outside again for two weeks and before it gets too cold again to be outside for two weeks at a time. Because it's about a two-week process to load and fire the kiln. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a five day loading and an eight day firing and it's an around the clock process. So either myself or one of the potters who is here firing with me is down at the kiln 24 hours a day for eight days. Oh my goodness. Keeping the kiln going. Yeah. So they have to camp outside just <laughs> right outside yeah. the kiln. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, well, but we have it cozy down there. So um, I've got nice chairs and it's under a big shed. So it's dry and there's electricity down there. So you can um, listen to music and. Oh, know. that's great. Oh, good. The early parts of the firing, which are very slow, you can even read a book while you're firing but that'll only be for a couple days and then the pace starts to pick up and then you've got to pay a lot more attention to the kiln and it's a more rigorous um giving it more wood it wants more give it more it wants more kind of building process and how many pieces are you firing in that um process it's about a thousand pots each time from 
very small little, maybe like a little whiskey cup up to the large jars that I make too. So about half to two thirds of the pots are mine. And then the rest are the other potters who fire with me. And it's an exchange for their, for their help to fire the kiln. We put their work in the kiln too. So there's usually... Uh, four, five, six potters work in the kiln at a time. Wow. That's a lot of hands in the kiln. And is it not, is it at one time that people can, you know, put their hands in there or they have to take their, um, take turns to do that? Because is it a pretty like small opening to get into the kiln? No, actually, um, the door comes unbricked and we can all be in the kiln at once. Oh, wow. Um, You go to the back of the kiln. The kiln is loaded from the back to the front. And everybody's pots go on every shelf of the kiln so that we all get to benefit from all of the um, sweet spots in the kiln, too. We share those. And do you have to wear special uh, outfits when you're in there with the temperatures and such? Well, so the kiln is loaded cold. So before, mm. before the fire is lit, so right. the kiln, right. So the kiln is, it, it's ready to load right now, but we fired in July. So nobody has pots to load right now, but it's just sitting there waiting. Um, so we could start loading and then we'll work from the back to the front. And when we finish loading the kiln, we brick up the door and introduce the fire which introduced means just light, light the fire. And then, then the heating process starts. So that's completely after the kiln is loaded. Gotcha. And how hot does it get in there? It gets 20 to 2300 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So that's cone 10 and it's a, it's a high stoneware temperature. And the kiln is funny to get to about, 2050, 2050 is very, very easy, but the last couple hundred degrees are tricky and a lot of work. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So when, before you put the items into the kiln, do you go about the throwing process and kind of similar to how many potters put together their pottery or do you go about something different? I, I think I'm a, I work just like other potters work, except that because I only fire twice a year, I'll build up pots. I'll make for maybe four months or more uh, before I fire the kiln. Whereas I know that some potters who have smaller kilns will make a load, fire a load, make a load, fire a load. So I, I have a long making time of the year and then the firing and then another long making time and the firing again. So um, when I'm actually working in the studio making pots, I'll work very steadily. Um, I have a lot of discipline to get myself into the studio. So I'll work probably four, five, six hours a day for four months or so. Um, And I'll make about 600 pots or so. I don't really count, but I fill all my shelves and then I move some things off into the other buildings and I do a few big pots. and, And then I just have a sense after all this time that that's enough pots for the kiln. Um, the pots can sit indefinitely in their bone dry state. So 
something that I make even now can be fired next spring. Wow. And how, how is that so? Do you have to keep your uh, house or your studio at a particular temperature to keep those intact? Well, I keep my studio definitely above freezing so that my um, raw clay doesn't freeze. That's, that's what I don't want to freeze because I buy it all de-aired and pugged and perfect. And I, I don't want to let that freeze. But a bone dry pot can freeze actually. And some of them I put in the barn and let them freeze. There, if there's no moisture in it, it's okay. They don't crack. Okay. So then, so after you go through that process, now you begin to get into the season where you're going to go about the firing. So that's right. about a two week process. So right. what about once that two week process is complete, how do you go about unloading them? And then what are the final phases of the process? Right. So well, before the loading, um, I glaze everything at once. So it'll take me four or five days to glaze the pots. And they once I glaze them, I'll bring them down to the kiln area and get everything lined up under the shed. There's a lot of kiln prep to do in terms of the wood because we'll use six or seven cord of wood each firing. So that wood has to be stacked and ready. The shelves of the kiln all need to be washed. There's really a lot of physical preparation to get the kiln ready to fire. Then we'll have the five-day loading, the eight-day firing. The kiln cools for another week. Because it's half underground, it, it holds the heat for a long time. So it'll cool for at least a week. And then the unloading really happens very quickly compared to everything else. We'll unload the kiln in one day. And that's just the sometimes the only chance I have to see the other people's pots and the other potter's pots. They go so quickly. I We get them out and they're just packed up and gone. So we, we all want to look that day at every pot that comes out of the kiln. I'm sure it's probably a lovely surprise that End of the end of the tunnel, end of the process. So I can only imagine. Totally, <laughs> totally. And there's always, you know, there's always such beautiful surprises in the kiln. There, there's definitely disappointments. Things will get knocked into each other with the wood, or they'll crack, or something will happen. So there is loss in the kiln, but there are always such beautiful things, you know, that we didn't expect. And each firing, I do try to do something new so that, you know, both I and my customers have something, you know, to look forward to and something new. That's great. And now what product do you enjoy crafting the most? Uh, my favorite pots. Hmm. Well, let's see. I think for a long time, I most liked making plates and, um, you know, the making tableware. And I still love that. I have such a collection of tableware too. So I just really enjoy envisioning it with food or being used to serve different things. Um, but I've also started doing some more sculpted vases that I kind of burnish with with ribs. Mm. And those have been coming out so 
beautifully in the kiln. Um, I made some changes. It's kind of a technical thing, but I made a change to the rear entry of the kiln, the flue exit a few years ago. And I built something called a sutema back there, which is like a checkerboard in front of the flue that creates a empty room. Sutema means empty room in Japanese. Hmm. Um, it's a way to sort of confuse the flame and keep it in the kiln longer. And that Sutema effect has been so beautiful on these vases. So something about the combination of the burnishing, the clay, and then the Sutema effects is is really beautiful, and I'm, I'm enamored of that right now. That's that sounds amazing. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait for you to see it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, other than that, are there any other new items you are working on? For, um, it doesn't have to be what you did back in July, but anything in the future that is a goal of yours that you really want to test out and see how it goes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, a couple years ago, I started using a different, um, different clay bodies, which I'm getting from North Carolina. And they're beautiful clays made by the Starworks Clay Company. And they're, they're fairly unprocessed clays. The owner of that company is a Japanese um, potter. And um, they're really beautiful clay, unprocessed in terms of they seem to have more impurities in them, more tooth, more of a feeling of just having been dug. And I'm exploring those clay bodies and also seeing how various slips, which are liquid clays, behave on the surfaces of the pots. Hmm. both those clays and my old ones. So I feel like the surfaces are getting more complex and more beautiful. That's exciting. I look forward to hearing and seeing more about that. I, I Thank you. That, I feel like uh, the materials in a lot of creative things are innovating in so many ways or just things that you stumble upon over time throughout your journey and just, mm -hmm. it may make your products better or it may be challenging. So it's nice that you're testing yeah. those out. So I, I wish mm -hmm. you luck on that. I think that'll be great. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about also was, I know you mentioned potters in plural when you, you talk about this process, when you go about the firing process. Do you have other potters that work for you or are there potters out there that also do uh, wood firing uh, pottery that just use your kiln uh, for their own pieces? Right. More of the second of what you just said. Uh, nobody works for me. So I work, I work for myself. The firing is a communal process. You know, because it's a big kiln, the firing requires other potters. And that's how it is in Japan, too. Big kilns are fired by groups of people. So when I talk about the potters, it's the crew who fire the kiln with me. And they are just absolutely integral to the process. 
the crew has rotated very slowly over the years. So they know the kiln really well too. They know what kind of work comes out well. We all know how to handle each other's work. Um, so they don't work for me. They're their own potters and they have their own lines of work. Um, you know, one has a gas kiln, one has a soda kiln, um, but they love wood firing. So they look forward to putting pots in the kiln and then their wood fired pieces they take home to complement their own range of wear. Hmm. I'm so uh, impressed that you have curated this network of potters that want to partake into this wood firing process. So yeah. that's great that you're able to provide yeah. that. It's sort of you're giving back to the potter community in that fashion. And give giving oh. back but i mean they give so much to me too and it's not only the you know the huge um time commitment and physical work commitment that they give me but they bring their energy and just when the potters are here and you know their work is here you can feel a sort of a crackling of energy down at the kiln that you won't feel when you when you just see it, you know, next week, you can tell that something will happen, but it really happens when the potters come and, and bring their work and bring their energy and their excitement for the kiln. Oh, I'm sure. And yeah, now I'm just circling back to this uh, last question I want to ask you is really why Maine? Why start a business here in Maine? And has Maine helped your brand at all? I know we kind of touched this slightly in the beginning, but um, I know that Maine was so new to you when you came up here. And I would love to learn more about now after being living here for a while, how it's helped you in your business. Well, for the practical aspect, you know, I, I did touch on this before, but I was able to buy enough land to insulate the pottery. Um, so the kiln belches black smoke during the, the last couple days of the firing. So it needs to be in a rural area you know, not right on top of neighbors, not right next to somebody who's going to worry about wood smoke. I mean, it's just wood. It doesn't happen in a downtown environment. Um, so I needed a place that I, I, I could, you know, could build the pottery and have wood smoke. This was so great when I moved to Swanville. I don't know if it's, if it's the case anymore, but I had called my code enforcer to make sure that I could build the kiln before I bought the place and asked them about the codes against burning. And they said, there's no codes in Swanville. So <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> and my neighbors who I love are very unimpressed with me because they like to tell me that they burn more wood a year than I do. So <laughs> great. You know, so it, it the practical aspects are perfect up here for me. I can have space around me. Their wood is plentiful and nobody is phased by wood smoke. But I think also, how has Maine helped? Well, I think there's a respect here for working hard. And I'm not sure that, you know, my neighbors knew what to do with me when I moved up here from Connecticut. But now after all these years, you know, they see me working, they know I'm working 
you know, just as hard as they are at what I'm doing. The Belfast area, you know, this Midcoast area has been so supportive in terms of buying pots coming out. You know, they, I have sales here a couple times a year and people have been coming out and adding to their collections for years. So I think there's an interest up here in, in craft, in the kiln. I tell the story about Japan, you know, a lot. There's people have remained really interested in that. So it was a really great place to land. It was really by chance because of that ad in the trade journal, but it was the perfect place for me. Thank you for tuning in to Makers of Maine. And thank you to Jody for being a guest on this episode. I look forward to seeing new pieces Jody creates with her wood-fired kiln, and I hope you all get to visit her space one day. If you'd like to see visuals of her wonderful products, please follow the Makers of Maine Instagram and Facebook. If you enjoyed this Minecraft's Weekend interview series thus far and others on this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Facebook. Lastly, for the next episode of the Minecraft Weekend series, my husband Kip Vermulen and I head to Lemington over to Dole's Orchard to see Emily Collate to see how she crafts her wooden crates and other products and learn more about her family's orchard. My husband is a photographer, so it was great to have him be a part of the shoot and do something fun together without the kids. <laughs> now, for our featured musician is Velocipede. Julia Plum and Baron Collins Hill both grew up in Maine. Julia started playing music by going to contra dances and wanting to play. Baron's family gave him a mandolin to borrow and taught him a few chords, and he just took off from there. They both met in 2008 at Maine Fiddle Camp in Mottville and they loved making music together right away. Their song in this episode is made of two tunes. The first is The Birdhouse, written by Baron, and the second is The Cat After Sausages by Julia. I will link their website and social media handles in the notes section of the podcast. Thank you all again, and stay safe and healthy. Thank you.